0: Hi, I'm Matana DeWitt, joined by Dr. Drew Johnson. Welcome to Discover Your Roots, a podcast that will give you tools for understanding the Bible in its original context and its wisdom for today. Let's get started. Welcome back. We are here to talk about Hebraic thoughts some more. Um, Thank you for joining us today. So, Surprisingly, you know, you you may have just started learning about hebraic thought as a result of these episodes that you're listening to with us. But the really cool thing is that we actually already think hebraically. If we're going to use the adverb again. Go for it. <laughs> the made-up adverb. It, say it
1: with more confidence. Hebraically. There, you there go. we
0: go. All right. So you probably are already thinking this way and you may not even know. it. So we're going to talk a little bit in this episode about how we're already thinking through the lens of hebraic thought. So can you kind of give us an example of what that looks like?
1: Oh, okay, here's an easy one that is not controversial to me or any biblical scholar, but may be controversial <laughs> to Uh-oh. people who are watching. This name. <laughs> um, I know it's controversial because when I say it casually in my classes, some students like have myocardial infarctions in their seat. Um, <laughs> the issue of you know the question of can you have sex before you're married uh, the this is one uh, that I would put in a wisdom practice. Uh, but the problem is I, I have students who come in. <laughs> It's the same thing when I was a pastor who come in to the office and say you know where in the bible does it say uh you can't do x and I'm like that's usually a bad question um the the better question is going to be something like do do the biblical authors think that it's wise to do x y or z right mm-hmm. um and so having sex before marriage is a pretty easy example of how we all are kind of doing this even if we're doing it lazily we or or maybe we think somebody's already figured it out um but it commands nowhere in scripture that, that you can't have sex before scripture, uh, before scripture. You can't have sex before marriage either. Um, uh, it doesn't command it anywhere. And it, and it's especially shocking because there are so many commands about sex. There are so many commands about the kinds of sex and the kinds of people and things that you cannot have sex with. So there's lots, lots of lists that create sexual paradigms for appropriate, um, and, or I should say inappropriate sexual behavior, not really so much appropriate sexual behavior, mm. it doesn't say. So where do we get this idea that you can't have sex before you're married? Well, it's little bits and bobs throughout scripture reinforce the idea that this is actually something that should be saved uh, for the covenant of marriage or whatever we think marriage is. But it really starts in Genesis 2, where it it, uh, you have this man and the woman presented as male and female specifically biologically so that they can produce children. That's one of the th- that's the reason why you have male and female. It's biological reproduction. Um, and then it goes on to display lots of functional and very dysfunctional marriages. Actually, I think it goes on to display throughout Genesis uh, and beyond mostly dysfunctional marriages. Um, but by the time we get through the end of the prophets, you will have picked up here and there this kind of view that how we use sex, how we use our bodies sexually can create lots of problems for us and everybody around us. And that Mm -hmm. it's actually something that we have to uh, be careful about, uh, like lots of things like fire is another thing that in the Torah, you have to be careful with fire. You can Mm -hmm. be held accountable if you uh, get drunk and uh, set somebody's field on fire. So there are certain things that it, it just puts lots of cautionary buffers around. And then, you have uh, some places in the Torah that suggest, you know, that the wedding bed should be left undefiled. Leaves it up to your imagination what that means. You have the prophets that seem to suggest it. By the time you get to the New Testament period, it's just a given that you shouldn't be doing this. It's a wisdom practice. So, in the same way that it doesn't tell us anywhere that we must pray in the Bible, uh, in the in the Old Testament at mm-hmm. least. Um, or in the New Testament, actually. Uh, it doesn't command us anywhere that we must fast. It takes these as wisdom practices, that any wise community that understands the instruction of God would just know that there are certain things that you should stay away from, be careful of, control, have self-control over. So the fact that most Christians already believe that tells me that they already have this kind of Hebraic notion that it doesn't have to be a command. It says, Hey, in situation X, you must not do Y, but we can actually pick up from across the scripture, this grand, uh, wisdom teaching. And I, you know, put it again, right next to fasting and praying, um, doesn't command it, but it seems to be a wise practice of the community, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. Makes sense. I will also remind us that when I say wise, I know some of us think like, Oh, okay, maybe, maybe not, you know, like maybe you should do it. Maybe you shouldn't in scripture. When something is wise, it's the opposite of foolishness. The road to foolishness is death and corruption and bringing people down with you in mm-hmm. your death and destruction. Uh, the road to wisdom is flourishing in life. So when I say it's wise, I mean it's the only thing that can bring flourishing into a community is mm-hmm. if they practice these things.
0: It's like the the idea in Deuteronomy where, um, you know, life or death, blessing or cursing. Right. That kind See, of I a- set before you today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That okay. same
1: language of like, hey – there's only and in life is listening to God's voice, loving him and clinging to him. Mm. So this idea that we like if and put it in the Gospel of John language, where else can we go? You have the words of life. Mm. You have the instruction, the guidance, right. the teaching. Yeah. Hmm.
0: That's great. So kind of stepping back again and thinking about, you know, what is what is Hebraic thought? Can you give us a quick reminder? The definition of Hebraic thought, as we think about, you know, what does this look like right now? Mm-hmm. We're, we're already we're already using the lens of Hebraic thought to understand right. what the Bible is trying to tell us. So, right. um, kind of going back to how would you define Hebraic thought? Uh, what would be some helpful helpful big picture understandings that we should have moving forward as we progress in this understanding?
1: Okay, so Hebraic thought, most generally, is it's the the consistent thought of all the biblical authors on all kinds of abstract and concrete principles, uh, that also have to be lived out in community. Um, so it's, what did they think about sex? What do they think about marriage? What do they think about, uh, truth telling or can you, can, or situations in which you can lie? What do they think about science and rationality? What did they think about politics? What do they think is, uh, like a, a better way to govern and rule people? Um, There's lots of political philosophy in the Bible. I mean, a ton of it. I mean, God is king, and then he appoints kings, and he gives very careful instructions to kings. So we're really thinking about uh, how do the biblical authors think about the nature of reality that is still true to this day, Mm -hmm. even if we have to map it over, right? So we're not in a kingdom but uh where, where there are kings, but we certainly believe there are ways in which the biblical authors should help us think about the way people should be governed and ruled today, even in a democratic republic hmm. um, if I could give one example of a very like a very clear idea that the Bible teaches that is both unusual in its own day and it's it's even been unusual in recent times, okay. um, but it's one that we actually already believe. So it's the idea that, Everybody, if you're human, is equal to each other um, so that you, Matana, just because you're young and healthy and have your whole life ahead of me doesn't actually make you worth more than I, mm-hmm. um, at least not in God's eyes or even uh, – so it's one thing to say it's not in God's eyes. It's another, another thing to say that the church, the people around us should not view us as different just because we're different kinds of human beings in different uh, places of life. Mm-hmm. So um, – This idea of fundamental human equality, obviously it begins with the image of God, male and female, that we are created, that everybody is created in the image of God. But that's only your starter kit. Because, look, slave traders argued that because we're made in the image of God and because West Africans and indigenous people in North America were made in the image of God, therefore we can enslave them and we can't treat them like cattle. Um, So that was the argument for slavery is because they're made in the image of God. Um, So that's only gets us on the start. Um, Then you have God who clearly takes care of this particular group of people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then when they come into slavery, right, God hears their cries. uh, He sees their agony and he responds. Um, And then he builds their entire calendar and their worship system into remembering that they were all slaves. None of them were noble people. None of them came from upper class, lower class. Everybody was a slave. Um, and you know, if you don't know Sukkot, if you guys, uh, haven't seen that practice, but Sukkot or the feast of booths or tabernacles or shacks, however you want to define that word, um, is to remind them that they all lived in shacks when they were brought up out of the land of Egypt. They have to live in a tent for seven days a year to remind them and their generations. It literally says in Leviticus 23, in order that your children might know that I made you to live in these when I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Mm. Passover, when the days to come when your son asks you, what does this mean? You're to tell him, you know, well, we were all slaves. We were all helpless. And with a mighty hand and outstretched arm, God rescued us and brought us into his house as his servants, his slaves, right? Um, these, the ritual life, the calendar, the community, the discussion, Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. You're like, great. But Jesus knew when he was quoting that, that you knew the rest of the passage that says, love the foreigner as yourself, for you were once foreigners in the land of Egypt, and I am Yahweh your God. Um, and you might even say, well, but is everybody equal if God is treating Israel so special? Um, like, are we all equal in God's eyes? And the answer to that is actually within Exodus itself. God saw the, the Egyptians, or sorry the slaves in Egypt. He heard their cries, uh, he saw their their um, their hardships, and he knew. It just says he knew, which is really, it just ends there. Mm-hmm. Even in the Hebrew, it just says, and God knew. And you're like, <laughs> knew what? What does he know?
0: <laughs> a little bit of a cliffhanger. <laughs> and so
1: if the question is, does God only hear the cries of the oppressed Israelites, or does he hear any human who's oppressed? When you get to uh, Exodus 21, this is straight out of the Red Sea. God's first instructions are, And if you oppress the foreigner, the widow, or the orphan, my anger will burn hot, and I will kill Mm -hmm. all of y'all and make your wives widows and your children orphans, right? Mm -hmm. So he's saying the same thing I did to Egypt, I will do to you if you mistreat these people. Mm -hmm. These are all strong statements, reflections, rituals, calendar life centered around reminding everybody we are all equal. Uh, in the days to come, in Deuteronomy, when you have a this these jubilee feast, everybody brings food. There is no king's table. There are no kings and subjects in in the political life of Israel. Everybody is a fellow subject under God. Um, so this is this is a radical idea. The, I mean, you can't find this in Egypt or Mesopotamia or the land of the Hittites or the Mari. Anybody who thinks for a second that the Greco-Roman system had any view of human equality is so sorely mistaken. Um, I was in Washington, D.C. recently doing some man-on-the-street interviews for another project. <laughs> and uh, when I asked people, where do you think human equality, the idea comes from, half the people said the Greco-Roman uh, beliefs of humans. And I thought, have you ever read anything that any of those people <laughs> ever wrote? So this is an idea. That even in America, we hold this idea of human equality uh, to be inalienable, right? Mm-hmm. Thomas Jefferson wrote about it. But we have to say, and here's where we can talk about fluency. So you can walk through, I can walk through all of that. You know, you can come along with me, you can point out even more that I didn't see that that informs this idea of human equality. And then we look at our founding documents where Thomas Jefferson says, says with his words, his intellect, his mind, he's reasoned through. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. We can all, through Hebraic thought, go, no, I'm sorry, Thomas Jefferson, you are wrong. You do not believe in the same kind of human equality mm-hmm. that the biblical authors are trying to uh, think about because you hold slaves. You're not rebuking slaveholding. You didn't, uh, you didn't try to defund slaveholding in the South during your time Uh, So we just have to say your life, your lived life, your spirituality, the way you actually live in community does not line up with these things that you're saying. Which
0: Jesus would have called.
1: We would call hypocrisy, right? We would have rebuked them. And so this is where the spiritual and the intellectual world uh, mash, and we we expect them to go together. If Mm -hmm. you believe these things are true, then this is what we should see in the community of of God's people. Mm. And so uh, this is a simple example, but I think a powerful one. That even today we can go in lots of cultures, and maybe even in American culture, we say we believe all humans are uh, created equal, but we don't actually act that way in lots of different circumstances or policies uh, in our government. And so this is this is Hebraic thought. I mean, I don't I don't know that most people are aware that this idea of human equality only comes from one place in the ancient world. In fact, I have a quote here. If I can read it, please do. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, this is from Tom Holland, not the kid who plays Spider-Man, but um, the Oxford scholar. He's a classicist. And he was actually shocked. Uh, he wrote this recently that he was shocked as he was doing some deep dives uh, for a research for a book he was working on on Greco-Roman thought. Um, that the more he read Greco-Roman thought about the nature of humanity and the nature of the world, the more he realized that the modern Western world, if you want to think about European West or the Christianized world or certainly in America – He's just like, we are not Greco-Roman at all. So he says, Mm -hmm. uh, he found it disturbing. Um, And he said, why did I find this disturbing? Because in my morals, my ethics, I was not a Spartan or a Roman at all. Assumptions I'd grown up with were not bred of classical antiquity, still less of human nature, but distinctly that of a civilization's Christian past. To live in a Western country is to live in a society still utterly saturated by Christian concepts and assumptions. Uh, and if I ever talk to mm. Tom, I'll say, can you quit saying Christian you know, like Inigo Montoya? Mm. You keep using that word. <laughs> I don't think that word – I think what you actually mean is Hebraic uh-huh. because everything that he cites as Christian is actually from the Torah. Okay. Uh, and it's just huh. Jesus reciting it.
0: Um, gotcha. Okay. Huh. Interesting. So it's not just about ways that we as the church, Christians, followers of Jesus, are understanding, for example, not laws, but uh, – wisdom around premarital sex, for example. It's not just that, like, on an individual life practice kind of level, but it's also very – like, it's systemic, too. Like, we see it throughout – or even our politics today. But I, it's interesting the distinction you made between, you know, we we see the concepts, but the lived – reality whenever the lived reality is different from what we are saying, that right. there's that – there's the um, – the yeah, the what, biblical authors aren't going to tolerate it. Yeah, they're just going to yeah. and
1: the, the and the pro I mean, if you read through the the poetry of the prophets, which we'll talk about in future episodes, this is what they're constantly decrying. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what God has instructed you, and yet you do this other thing. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: and, and then and would you say that that's even a worse reality than if you didn't understand? I mean, it do, it does <laughs> bring
1: it? the judgment of God. It kills mm-hmm. off ten of the twelve tribes of Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, it's it's. um there is always moral output. You know, if we want to think about Hebraic thought sounds very ethereal or heady. um, But the concern of the biblical authors is it always impacts the moral, uh, the moral fabric of the community and the community of God, no matter how big. And so that's why they're always so concerned is there's no such thing as, Oh, I just think and reflect these things in my mind. It will always pay out Mm -hmm. um, in the way that we, in the way that we live as a community. Um, I, and I think I think it's fair to say that, you know, I used to teach apologetics and philosophy, uh, a long time ago. And you do read strands of Christians who are just like, Oh, you know, the secular world, the secular now, Tom Holland, the guy I quoted earlier, he's an atheist. Uh, so he's an atheist Oxford Don, uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, I think we're in this weird position where Richard Dawkins and Tom, Tom Holland at least appreciates the situation correctly. I think <laughs> is that, you know, the, the critique against many things in the Bible are actually coming from people who are fully living out the Hebraic worldview. Mm. You know, if they saw someone fall and stumble on the street, they, would They'd, they'd run to help them, right? That they'd be the good Samaritan. Mm-hmm. Um, they believe in human equality. They believe that everybody deserves uh, equal treatment under the law. Um, they believe in the general sense of loving your neighbor, even loving the stranger. So even my closest, uh, dearest atheist friends are already living out, at least in their individual ethical lives, um, the the biblical view of, of how communities should be in some sense. It may, it may be distorted. It may be poorly interpreted but at least they, they understand those things and so I think it, it creates this weird situation where we live in a, in a world as Tom Holland calls thoroughly saturated with Hebraic thought and mm. Hebraic ethics and yet, what does it mean to be different in, in that world? And what does it mean to think clearly alongside the biblical authors, despite the fact that everybody is kind of already thinking that way on a lot of topics? Okay. Including the way scientists think about the world, the way a lot of educators think about the world, mm. is already like following pretty closely along and tracking with Hebraic thought.
0: Mm. And they don't even know it. To
1: them, and and they don't even know it. I've sat in a room with engineers and scientists from a nuclear weapons lab in IBM and described to them the biblical view of knowing of like how do we know things with confidence and i just i just couched it in scientific terms and they all told me like yeah that's exactly what we think that's that's hmm. that's what wow. we do that's what we think and i'm like would you be surprised to know that 3000 years ago this idea was being written down recorded and embodied by a group of semites in southwest asia and we, uh, asia that we know as the hebrews um hmm. And so uh, many of them were shooketh, as the kids used to say. Probably, it's probably not true, probably not a hip phrase anymore, but yeah.
0: Wow. So this, the concept of Hebraic thought is actually very, very practical. It's not just, yeah. it's not just a, um intellectual term. Like this is actually, we we see this being played out all around us in the world, and we see it as a powerful way to be able to actually apply what the Bible's saying in real world situations, in our own lives as well,
1: and to think through some of the thorniest situations today. I mean, we we all know there's very flat footed thinking, you know, pe- reactive thinking. Not even thinking; it's just reaction to mm. ideas because we think our guy or our gal is right, or whoever our influencer is. Um, the biblical authors want to have sit and have a real hard think and put us put our bodies and our communities through some practices to help us uh, understand and discern what is true and good and beautiful and worth pursuing and what is um, deleterious what's going to be prob- problematic i really do i have a bunch of teenagers in my house right now so um, it, and, and i counsel students all the time and it's funny how i, I you know you forget what it's like to be a teenager That you really just don't know because you don't have enough experience how things are going to turn out 10 years from now. You know, you're making these little decisions. And so sometimes on a good day, my own children uh, or my college students, you know, they'll come in and give me the setup and I'll say, yeah, I don't think what you think is going to happen is going to happen. And here's what I think is going to happen. And here's why I think it's going to happen. And then, um, in classic form, just like I did when I was their age, uh, they ignore me. Do what they're going to do anyways because their (laughs) impulses are so strong and their desires are so deep within them. And then they come back. This happens every once in a while. They come back and they're like, how did you know? (laughs) How did you know exactly what you said happened, like exactly the way you said it? I said, it's just age and just paying attention. Like it's not magical. It's just the kind of wisdom and discernment. And I think Mm -hmm. that's what the biblical authors they want to be the person over our shoulder guiding us to uh, help us see where we can't quite see it, we don't have enough experience. Mm-hmm. It's easy as stuff that we kind of, you know, like relationships, those are pretty easy to deal with, um, et cetera. But when it's stuff that we really don't know what to do, I mean, like COVID is a perfect example of mm-hmm. like we're really not quite sure w- which way to go forward on some of these things. I think actually the biblical authors could help us think about those things. Mm-hmm.
0: Wow. Yeah, that's interesting that you know, it's it's uh, we're we're going to be moving into talking about in the next few episodes, like specifically how how is the Bible structured? What are some of the different like elements of of the way the Bible communicates to us, whether mm. through you know law, poetry, stories? But here we're kind of talking about you know big picture. What is this what does this mean for us? Like being able to really dive deeper into Hebraic thought. Um, Is great. But then really setting the stage at the the beginning and saying, well, this is what's this is where we're going to actually be able to get to as a result of being able to know how to employ this. Um, So from here, as we close out this episode, is there is there any kind of last comments you'd like to make about Hebraic thought from the big picture? Um, Things that we should consider and remember as we begin to turn toward more practical application of what this looks like.
1: I think the the simple message at this point is that Bible literacy issue that Bible literacy is not enough, and I think we know lots of people who know the Bible really well that have are bad at applying it or thinking mm. through it. Uh, if if that's us, uh, uh, even, and so really hunkering down to do some of the work to really think carefully through Scripture means that we have to learn how its literature works because it's poetry, law, and it's story are in some ways similar to ours, but in some ways very different. And so we have to learn their way of speaking. We have to learn why they speak in such a way that doesn't feel normal uh, as the way we reason through things. Um, and just having that discipline, knowing just like when you're memorizing vocab words, when you're learning a new language, that that discipline is actually going to bear fruit when we come to uh, speaking it fluently. Mm,
0: that's great to know. Awesome. Well, thank you guys for being here with us again. Be sure to join us uh, for our next episode as we talk about pixelated and, and hyperlinked. You'll want to hear a little bit more about what that means, especially as it relates to how the Bible is structured. So uh, join us again, and until next time. Thanks for listening to Discover Your Roots. This podcast is brought to you by the Passages team and is made possible by our generous donors. If you'd like to make a contribution to the work we do, Please visit passagesisrael.org and click the donate button. To find more resources about the Bible in its original context, the roots of the Christian faith in Israel, the Israeli Palestinian conflict, Jewish Christian relations, and more, subscribe to our newsletter at passagesisrael.org forward slash foundations. Again, that's passagesisrael.org forward slash foundations. You can also follow us on social media to learn more about Israel and the Bible at Passages Israel. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe and leave a review. Until next time, I'm Matana DeWitt. Thanks for listening.